You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to Sunday Roast on Virgin Radio Pride. Now, what's been going on since we were last together? Well, first of all, we should start with the terrible news that a young Spanish gay man, Samuel Luis, was beaten to death. And the news came as a reminder of just how far we still have to go just to be safe in various places around the world. Although the demonstrations against homophobia that the attack prompted have at least shown that in Spain, at least, much of the general population is outraged at what happened. Small consolation. But what else has been going on? Um... Elsewhere in the world, we've got to talk about football. There's been more support for our community from the England football team. Last week, I celebrated the England captain wearing a rainbow armband. I thought that was great, but I called him Gareth Southgate rather than Harry Kane. Let's gloss gloss over that. This week, I was delighted to see player Jordan Henderson. That's the fit one for anybody wondering. Um, I was delighted to see him tweet a message of support to fan Joe White, who went to a match in makeup for the first time since coming out as non-binary. I am loving all this support from the England team for our community. And as a result, I've been getting more into the game than I ever have before. Really looking forward to tonight's game. I've also been getting into the new series of RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars. One of my all-time faves, Jiggly Caliente, is back. One of two queens who've transitioned since their first appearance on the main show. This opens up all kinds of fascinating subjects for the queens to discuss in the workroom, as they have been doing so far. Who knows? Maybe this discussion will inspire a debate on our show further down the line. In the meantime, I hope you all enjoy the topics we'll be chatting about on today's show. As usual, everyone's welcome to get involved. If you want to contact us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK and I'm on at Matt Kane Writer, or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. Please do join the conversation. Now, who've we got on today's show? I'm going to be joined by Shivani Darve. As a broadcaster, they currently present the drive time slot every weekday right here on Virgin Radio Pride, as I'm sure some of you know. As a scientist, they also present the Guardian's Science Weekly podcast. And as I'm sure you've guessed from the pronouns that I'm using, if you don't know already, Shivani, I identifies as non-binary and came out live on BBC Radio Wiltshire. We will be joined by Jake Graff. He is an actor, director and screenwriter. He's known for his roles in films such as The Danish Girl and Colette. He's also known for his high-profile trans activism, much of this alongside his now wife, Hannah. Last year, the two of them featured in a Channel 4 documentary, It Was Brilliant, about their journey to become parents to baby daughter Millie. 
And I'm going to be asking him about that in a break. But these are the main topics we're going to be discussing. First up, with restrictions finally beginning to ease, it's looking like the end may be in sight for the pandemic, finally. But have queer people responded to COVID differently to our straight cis counterparts? Next, with Hungary under pressure from the EU to drop its anti-gay laws and everyone from politicians to football teams getting involved, is it right to impose our liberal ideas on other countries and cultures? Then, what's the best, clearest and, very importantly, the most inclusive way to describe our very diverse community? And how do we feel about the word queer? Then finally, it's not just about football. Wimbledon is also in full swing this week. So we're going to talk about tennis. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. Hello to my guests, Shivani Darve and Jake Graff. How are you guys today? Good, thank you. Doing very well, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much for joining me. I'm going to be having a little chat to find out what each of you is up to in between the topics we're going to be debating. But I'm going to get straight down to business with our first subject. Now, everybody knows that this week they have announced that restrictions, COVID restrictions, are finally set to start easing. And it looks like the promised Freedom Day is on July the 19th. It is going to happen. But I want to look at compliance with the rules so far. Now, I appreciate this isn't a very scientific analysis, but I'm going to put it out there. Every time, yeah, Jake's bracing himself. Every time I've seen someone on public transport refusing to wear a mask and cockily goading everyone else to challenge them, it has been a straight cis person. And the same is true. I'm obviously trying to be a bit provocative here. (laughs) And this anecdotal evidence isn't scientific. But the same is true of the handful of people I know who are refusing to be vaccinated. I've also been interested in the discussion around certain ethnic minorities refusing the vaccine because of mistrust and fear of authority. So what I want us to talk about is, has our history of oppression and fear as a community, has that affected the way that we've responded to the pandemic? Shivani, you're looking at me with a look in your eyes. I don't know what that means. Tell me what you think. I think this is something that we could talk about for hours and hours. <laughs> but I think, you know, people in the LGBTQ plus community and then whatever other communities they intersect, whether that's, you know, ethnic minorities or dif- disabilities or um, economic classes, whatever group they're in, they are at the end of the day just people. So like the, you know, straight, heteronormative, cisgendered, part of society they are there's a combination of people who will follow the rules diligently and there's a combination of people who will want to flout them and i think there's no way of saying the lgbtq plus community is one way or another better or worse than following the rules absolutely but um (laughs) and there are all these intersecting factors as you pointed out but one thing we do know about our community the majority of people in it we have had a struggle to become who we are or to accept ourselves. We have usually known fear. Um, Jake, you are nodding. What do you think about my very provocative statement, but is there something in there that we can um, bounce around between ourselves? What do you think? 
I mean, I kind of agree. I think that there is, you, one cannot generalise about our very, very broad and diverse LGBTQIA community. I have seen people who, are, who, you know, I would expect to do more in terms of wearing masks who have pretty much flouted it and posted pictures on Facebook of them flout, flaunt, you know, totally disregarding lockdown rules throughout lockdown. And it's kind of enraged me. And I thought, you know, why are you doing this? You're a middle-aged woman who should know better. And I've also, you know, I'm also aware that there are mates who've gone to underground sex parties and, you know, underground raves and so on. But I also know that there are a lot of people who've locked themselves away and masked up and washed their hands, you know, in a sort of, I, I've got my gel normally knocking around, I've got about six on me. You know, I know that there are people that have really adhered to those rules and who are absolutely terrified. And I'm not, I know you really want one of us to say <laughs> it's all because we're queer and it's all been so tough. And that's why we're even more scared of COVID. I think that will just depend on the individual person, the individual's and as to how they, you know, their outlook on life. I think some people will be more debonair and more kind of cavalier about things. And those are the people that aren't wearing the masks and that are thinking, great freedom. So- I think what you I think what you can think about in this, in the regard of like LGBTQ plus people, especially older people who would have lived in this country through the 70s and the 80s with the AIDS crisis, they are people who understand what it is like to live through a epidemic, if not pandemic, already once before so I, I I mean I don't haven't done any of the reading I'm sure there are papers on it but I haven't I don't know for a fact but I'm sure that this would mean that you know these people who have that lived experience are aware of what's going on in a slightly different way to somebody my generation might be and might therefore have a different take on how to follow these rules well I have to say so I um, you're being very sensitive and diplomatic <laughs> not when you say these people who've lived through it I am 46 and I absolutely came of age and came of age sexually right in the eye of the storm of the HIV AIDS epidemic and I know what it is to be terrified of catching something and um I certainly think that, yes, we're all individuals, you can't generalise about the entire community, but I certainly think that that affected um, the way that I responded to this. I clicked back into fear of catching something that could kill me. You know, um, you're nodding. What do you think to my um, response? Well, I think <laughs> I think that's fair. And I think um, looking at the way that LGBTQ plus people have... Um, live in live in a fear of coming out. Live in fear from society um, on a gen, like very general scale. Not everybody experiences that, but a lot of people do. And based on that, and the fact that people, you know, sometimes will experience those feelings, to then put people in a lockdown, I feel like that makes that amplifies everything. So you know, if you're scared of being out at home and then you're told you're not allowed to leave your house, that's going to make you a lot more scared if you're, you know, there are all these different examples that we can give. But I think our experiences as LGBTQ plus people do have a really important uh, way in the way that we see the world, but they aren't the only way that we see the world. No, absolutely. Although I would, yeah, and you've got all these intersecting factors, absolutely. Um, And we shouldn't lose sight about that. But I do think that um, the default setting that we start with, the range of emotions that we 
could expect to feel over the course of our life is probably wider and more intense, you know, before you start to bring in individual factors. Like being at home where you're supposed to feel safe and accepted and able to blossom into the person you're meant to be and you will be loved for it, whatever. Mm. That's not something we have as a default. Um, Jay, you're nodding. (laughs) I I was just thinking, I've got so many friends within our community who are sort of slightly older who've actually really embraced lockdown, who have loved staying at home. Obviously, they're not kids who are being misgendered or being badly treated by their parents. But, you know, I've got so many friends who are really loving lockdown still now sort of saying great I don't have to hug you you know I'm not going to touch you I've really enjoyed feeling safe in my space not having to go to the events not having to put on the face not having to go to the dance parties and all these things that it sort of feels like it's there is a real divide of those who feel that it's taking away their liberty and they want to go out and you know be in a sweaty hot room or as you know I saw in Clapham Common last weekend it was mobbed with a lot of very handsome young men (laughs) totally unmasked and you know acting as though there was no covid and had been no covid so i think you know it really is very much your outlook and i think that will always be the case i think you're absolutely right it's very hard to generalize okay so here's a question shivani so the when there's any kind of editorial discussion of lower take up of vaccines in ethnic minority communities um one of the reasons offered is always right up there as a headline there's a mistrust and fear of the establishment and the authority because they have been oppressed by that um establishment um as have we. And when I say we and pointing at myself, I'm thinking predominantly in the past. But, you know, the government of the time's failure to deal with the HIV AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s, arguably it was down to a lack of interest and care. Um, Jake is nodding, you know, this government um, has, you now shaking his head, This, <laughs> in terms of trans people, they have a lot of reason to fear this government or to mistrust this government and is this government that we need to trust to get us through this pandemic yeah i mean this government f- f- the fact that our equalities minister actually doesn't believe that women like my wife who are who is a trans woman is a woman and belongs in you know female spaces of course that's going to make us distrustful i don't trust our government and I don't think for me it was anything to do with with listening to the government as they sort of flip flopped and went back and forth. I think for me it was a, you know, we actually lost a friend very early on in the in the pandemic, and then my wife actually got COVID also very early on. It was pretty bad, and I think from that, from what I gleaned from that, it's not good. It kills people. It's pretty bad. I then thought, you know, for myself, for my parents, for you know, for everyone else around, I'm going to wear a mask. I'm going to use gel. I'm going to stay inside. And I think, again, I, I really think that sort of was very much down to my personal experience. I'll tell you what, um, Shivani, I know that you're resistant to generalising, as <laughs> am I. I'm just trying to um, trying to unpick certain things. We do know that statistically our community did not vote for this government in a majority, overwhelmingly against. Um, so you would assume some kind of resistance to... Um, its plans and activities and to combat well what do you think i think there's like two ways of looking at it like you can say because you, you've got to take the whole the year as a whole not just look at freedom day quote unquote freedom day <laughs> um because you know the government did lock everybody up and it did say don't go outside you've only got one hour of sort of mandated exercise and um 
was that there to oppress LGBTQ plus people? Not deliberately. Did it oppress LGBTQ plus people? Some of them, yeah, probably, to a larger extent than their heteronormative uh, cis counterparts. But then at the same time... Um, it was the it was the only thing I think to ha- to go into a full lockdown was the only thing at that point that the government could have done to get anything under control. And now speaking to my friends who are you know the millennial young millennial sort of older Gen Z generation, all they want to do is go out and party. All they want to do is just have fun. And that's got nothing to do with the distrust of the government and the way the government is dealing with the pandemic. It's to do with the fact that they haven't been able to kiss and hug and sleep with their friends. (laughs) And that's what they want to do. And then I've got friends on the other hand, and I would probably put myself in this category, of people who are a bit scared because I am fully aware that this pandemic is not going to be over at the, you know, the say-so of Boris Johnson. And I had I had coronavirus um, early into the pandemic as well. And let me tell you, it was horrible. And if I knew that I was the reason somebody else had to experience that, I would feel terrible about it. So, yeah, I'm scared. I I don't want to have to go to a sweaty club and dance around. <laughs> no, and no matter how much I want to, like Rain on Me came out last year, and I haven't been able to dance to that in a club, <laughs> and that should be illegal. But I still am willing to wait because I want to put the safety of others first. But on the other hand, I completely understand why some people do want to go out. And actually, a crucial point that you made at the beginning of your answer was that, um, you know, most of us could see that lockdown was the only answer. And the fact that even if however we feel about our government, pretty much every government around the world was doing it. So actually that um, it was quite easy to get over our mistrust of the government if you just have that in mind. I would love to know what you guys think. Um, My take is that I think if we as a community, individuals within it, have struggled to become who we are or to be accepted for who we are, or we've struggled to build up our own self-love, then we really appreciate life. And there's lots of reasons why straight cis people may have learned to appreciate life. But I think um, that's there for us before we even start on those intersecting factors. And we understand its value. And that opens up the whole topic of the P word, privilege. (laughs) Um, What do you think, Jake? about privilege specifically (laughs) privilege and just um you know we um our struggle so i was talking earlier about it you know we know what it's like to experience fear but we also know what it's like to be unhappy and those of us who've who are lucky enough to have come out the other side of that you know when trans people have um possibly a more intense journey to experience happiness and certainly to become the people they're meant to be um we really, you know, having experienced unhappiness and then found it, those of us who are lucky enough to do that, does it give us something to fight for? I mean, I think everyone appreciates life, I'd like to think, and I think everyone has something to fight for. You know, I, I obviously am totally aware that my wife and I are white, are cis-passing, have been accepted by family and friends, which, you know, a lot of trans people haven't. Um, we know that we're very, very fortunate. I mean, you know, as the pandemic hit, 
we were expecting our first baby by surrogate and just the fact that we could afford the £45,000 to have a baby by surrogate also falls into an area of massive privilege. A lot of my trans friends haven't even been afforded fertility treatment. So, you know, we know that we're very, very lucky. We were also told if you get COVID before your baby's born, which was a month into Boris's first lockdown, we wouldn't be allowed to take our baby. We wouldn't be allowed near her. We wouldn't be allowed near the hospital. We wouldn't be allowed, et cetera, et cetera. So we were... To say terrified is like, you know, not to put too fine a point on it. We were absolutely, our whole house, if you'd lit a match, would have gone up in smoke because there was so much hand gel being used and so much caution. And when everything came back from the supermarket, we would spend a good 20 minutes just rubbing every strawberry to make sure that it was, you know, de- detoxed. So, you know, for, from our point of view, our privilege led us into a place of absolute hysteria when it came to, my God, we must not get this thing. And I suppose, you know, we, we realised that we were entering new stages of our life whilst also a lot of people were ill and dying in hospitals um which can only be privilege um it's interesting because i was going to ask you yes you and hannah are trans but you're a straight couple i was going to say do you think your experience of covid and the lockdowns have been any different (laughs) to any other straight couple who are new parents but actually you've just said there was so much because of the surrogacy journey there was so much more bound up with it. I mean, our baby was born in Belfast and we were sitting in London watching TV, waiting to hear if everything was going to be locked down. And when, you know, there was talk of travel bans, we threw everything we owned into Hannah's car and just drove 12 hours through the night to get to Belfast to be there. So, you know, for us, you are absolutely... I mean, you know, when people call us a heterosexual couple with both of us, you know, I lived as a lesbian for years. You know, I've dated guys and had a sort of very gay gay male experience. Hannah lived as a gay man pre-transition year we've kind of you know I now consider myself pansexual so we've sort of ticked all our LGBT I wouldn't ever call us necessarily a straight couple but just because like who wants to be called a straight couple right (laughs) Um, but you know we are we again were very fortunate that we had a house and we had each other and we were in a safe space so yes God we were lucky in that respect okay Shivani um, when you hear people thinking it's an outrageous attack on their freedoms to have to wear a face mask as if this is the worst oppression they could possibly ever experience do you think that reflects the privilege often that they've experienced in the run up to that I mean, yeah, I, th- if th- I think if the most oppressed you've ever felt is by wearing a piece of cloth over your face in order to protect others and yourself, then um, then, then you've had a very easy life, I think. And um, I, I, I find it a little bit unbelievable that that is what somebody, you know, is, that is a true lived experience for somebody, no matter who they are and what the privilege they've had, they could be, you know, the Prince of England for all I care. But we know that people experience issues, no matter who they are, what kind of privilege is afforded to them. And people like to say inflammatory things on social media to get a rise, to get, you know, headlines written about them or whatever. And um, I just think it's a bit silly that, that they want to... Um, I mean, it has actually totally derailed any kind of criticism before in terms of security and so on for the niqab, which we've had for years and years yeah. and years. And all of a sudden, everyone's wearing face coverings. All of a sudden, it's okay. And it's not a security issue anymore. And it's not a, you know, it's so in that respect, it's kind of been a positive because that was really, you know, in France, obviously, they're still illegal, yeah, which yeah, yeah. is just lunacy. So presumably, it's a, a difficult position for the French government to be in now that everyone is wearing face coverings. How do they now justify their ban on this religion? religious 
piece of clothing. So we need to basically we need to like spin it so that now it doesn't it doesn't we don't forget about the niqab. We need to spin it so that we get you know. Muslim women who want to wear their niqab to be able to wear their niqab in peace. Absolutely. And that's, that's like the the positive we can take out of having to wear face masks. Well, and also, I wondered, and this is a serious question, you know, before, because we, we didn't start wearing face masks, if you remember, till a, a good few months into the pandemic. I wonder if countries where women, 50% of the population, were niqabs as um, standard, whether they had lower rates of transmission and why there was no discussion of that, actually. I think, I, mean? I think at the time the world was imploding and I think that was probably the we least just, thing on the yeah, minds. Yeah, of, yeah. And also a lot of these countries, you know, there is a lot of poverty, there is a lot of divisions within the classes. And I suppose, you know, all those that were able to be in safe, sort of, you know, safe spaces and have the medication and have the hospital care and so on were safe and doing their thing. And I think the rest of the population were probably busy dying, as we've seen happening a lot in India and a lot of other countries where niqabs are potentially worn. Not absolutely, India, but... <laughs> absolutely. Um, Shivani, you touched on this earlier, talking about young people being desperate to get out now. Um, certain sections of the mainstream media have attacked young people for being irresponsible, for going out partying, spreading That's the us. virus. <laughs> well, you as the youngest person in the room, um, do you think, I'm assuming you think this is very unfair criticism of young people? Yeah, I think it's unfair. I think, you know, as as with any community, it is made up by a group of diverse people who all have minds of their own and think for themselves. One of my best friends sent me a text saying, I'm coming to London on June the 9th, uh, July the 19th, let's go clubbing. And I sent back a text saying, absolutely not. We're best friends, we're very close. We've got very similar outlooks on lots of things we obviously have very different opinions about this. And that is just how people are. You know, we live in a country where we are allowed to think for ourselves and be ourselves and express ourselves. And so to, you know, brush all young people with this one stroke of they all just want to go out and snog each other. I mean, yes, but some of us will do it and some of us won't. (laughs) How about single people versus people in relationships? Because one thing I've noticed, I'm in a relationship now at the ripe old age of 46, if I've not mentioned that already. (laughs) But for most of my life, I lived as a single person. And um, a lot of queer people I know have constructed, um, created for themselves less conventional but very full lives and um, what happened with the pandemic I know a lot of these people who feel disproportionately punished because a lot was taken away from them and if they look at heteronormative couples who maybe stay in and watch the telly every night in small towns less changed for them you're both nodding what do you think Joe? I mean, I'm sure there are I mean of course there are a lot of straight you know I was going to say normal (laughs) straight normal people there's good straight normal people I'm sure there's a lot of straight people out there who also found themselves sitting lonely in there probably a lot more you know proportionately whatever I I know that we felt very lucky as a couple because we had friends who we only kind of clicked into seeing in July and they were like I've literally not left my house for three months and I've been absolutely alone and these were people within all communities you know the LGBT and and non-LGBT community so I think you know (sighs) 
there are a lot of single people out there who've really struggled and I think that is the generalisation rather than it being a an LGBT thing and a straight thing I think it really is a lot of single people yeah. and a lot of people yeah. it's been really really tough for those people who don't have a housemate or a partner or a parent that they could have you know shacked up with I have to say um, I when I struggled at one point when I was struggling with one of the lockdowns a friend said to me if you need to kind of take yourself out of that just confront in your head a period of your life when it would have been much worse to go through this. And I said, quick as a shot, when I was single and living on my own, um, the idea of bubbling with another household and feeling like you were some kind of burden. And um, yeah, I just think that must be so much harder. What do you think, Shivana? So I, I started dating my girlfriend... Um, it was really casual at the very start of the pandemic and we were both sort of talking to each other like, oh, what's all this COVID stuff about? What do you think of it? And we were both like, ah, we'll be okay. I'm sure things will be fine. Don't really understand it. Um, and so I, I then moved to Swindon for a year and uh, we thought, oh, let's just see how it goes. We might make some nice trips. Was she, was she in Swindon? She was not in Swindon. She's oh. in London. And so I, I was moving there for work and I thought, you know, let's I'll, we'll see how it goes. If, if you want to come to Swindon, I'll be back in London a lot, I'm sure. And then a week after I was there, lockdown happened and there was nothing to do and no one to see. And you know, with or without the pandemic, I think Swindon is pretty much the same in terms of what there is to do. Um, so it meant that all of my friends in London and more importantly, my girlfriend had nothing to do in the most dynamic city in the world. And I actually credit uh, the lockdown to the fact that it allowed, it, it basically made her have nothing to do so she could spend all her time on the phone to me. <laughs> So I was a real winner out of that first lockdown. Um, but it was really tough and it was because we weren't serious at the time and it was really hard for us to find the language to, to be able to be each other's support systems when we weren't that serious. We didn't know each other that well. Um, it's such a weird thing we've all lived through, isn't it? It's such a weird thing. Yeah. It, I actually know it's, it's, it is very weird. Again, there's this real division between people that have you know I, I've got a very good friend who again he just started dating this guy and they were sort of very very early on they would had like two dates and then lockdown happened and they made a conscious decision you know let's move in together and let's give this a go because that was what they wanted to do and they're still together now and you're like that is amazing they did the lesbian thing which was <laughs> to sort of have a date and move in together and it's worked and they're amazing and then I've also got friends who were married for five or ten years who were engaged who had known each other for years who were living who had kids who, who have broken up through this so it's really very strange the sort of different way that people have reacted and the cracks that have appeared in certain relationships and the sort of the way that we've had to reevaluate how we date and you know this I think you know the, the you know what the gay male community the stereotypes of sort of you know one night stands and you're dating many different people Don't at once I know all, it. The, all these terrible <laughs> stereotypes but you know the, uh, as I say I think there is something to be said for the lesbian way of dating which is you know first day <laughs> and move in well it is interesting actually because somebody said I remember early on some commentator in the media said it's a great leveller and somebody else pointed out no it's not actually because we're all having completely different experiences I know there are certain commonalities and um, coming out of it as you say some people are 
battered. I mean, even if we forget, obviously, the the first thing is physical health and, you know, people who've lost people close to them. But even if we take that out of the equation, some people have lost jobs, are absolutely battered by the pandemic, their lives decimated. And others have had... um, a good, you know, they used to talk after the Second World War that they're having a good war, in inverted commas. I wonder if going forward there'll be any kind of resentments towards, um, you know, people who prospered and those who didn't. What do you think, Shivana? I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if there will be. Um, but what I do think is that. There's rather than you know we were talking about privilege and lockdowns and stuff and rather than um, it being solely about privilege and the the access that you have to a support system around you, I think it's got a lot to do with the support that has been provided for by the government. And you know the furlough scheme did really good things for the people who it could help, and um, you know working from home for some people was a really good thing for those of the people that benefited but there were I think in the way that I'm trying to say don't generalize think about individuals <laughs> and like each individual person's like response to the world and how they might interact with things I think the government did do a broad brush of well everybody works a nine to five in an office so they can all just take a you know little computer stand home with them and work from home and that's not what happened and that isn't the reality for so many people in this country and the support that the government should have been providing hasn't been there for some of the most vulnerable people in our community and I think unfortunately that is a lot of LGBTQ plus people Absolutely. Okay, right. I need to wind up. So let's fi- let's end by looking forward. We've got Freedom Day, as it's being touted, Jake, on the nineteenth of July. How do you feel about it? Can we have a positive note? Oh no, you're shaking your no, head. No, I, 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 absolutely not. I think we are just doing about right here. I was reading today on the way here on the tube that the uptake has dropped dramatically. That there is going to be apparently a hundred a uh, hundred thousand new cases daily in the next week or so. I am terrified to go on the tube without a mask I'm terrified to go into a restaurant I don't want to put fear out there but I think you know we were kind of getting to a place where it was starting to die down to now it does feel like the government said well hey ho let's all take our masks off and and see what happens hell you know if it you know herd immunity nonsense I think and I know I sound like a really old man but let's just be a little bit safe a little bit longer and even if we're told we can throw away those masks guys keep thinking about each other because those masks are protecting other people all right. I wanted to end on a positive note, but we've ended on fear, which is totally fine if that is the right, if that is the right emotion. This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Shivani Darve, let's have a little chat. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's great to have on in this show another DJ from Virgin Radio Pride. How are you finding things? Oh, it's great. I'm actually loving it. I'm having a great time. I feel like I just get to play amazing songs and have, you know, conversations with myself every day, which, you know, I was doing anyway, but now there's an audience. Have you uh, have you got any favourite moments so far? Um, I've been getting very into the football and if anybody does listen to my show, they will know that I do not know a lot about football, but I am very into it and I feel like this is my time to be presenting (laughs) on an LGBTQ plus station about 
football, which is, you know, something that we don't always have such a great, um, oh, absolutely. you know, history with as a community that uh, I just feel like this is the perfect opportunity for me to really show off my sporting lack of knowledge. <laughs> well, I tell you one area where you do have a lot of knowledge is science. You're yeah. probably the most qualified of all the presenters at Virgin Radio Pride in that area. So tell us about the Guardian Science Weekly podcast that you present and whether that has, your background as a scientist and your work with the Guardian Science podcast has given you a better understanding of why we are the way we are or rather any ammunition to use against our adversaries who attack us using science as a weapon. Oh my gosh. Okay, so um, I love science. I, I, I love science when I was a kid and I went on to study physics at uni because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do, so I'm just going to do something. Um, and I was like, physics sounds cool. You get to do stuff and space is awesome. And then um, I was at natural progression. I went into radio because I was like, I want to be the next Brian Cox. Um, and I have realized that there's so much about science that I do not know and I do not understand but I know a lot more about science than so many other people and a lot of those other people are our adversaries who want to go on the internet and claim that you know trans people aren't real people or non-binary doesn't exist and I'm just there like oh yeah you've got a year nine knowledge of basic biology let me school you (laughs) so you can slap them down with your science yeah I can I can uh you know I, I try not to go for a slap down first off. I try and rise up, you know, help elevate them as people. And then if it if it if it turns hostile, slap down or the block button works equally well. And you've mentioned the non-binary identity as something our adversaries claim doesn't exist. Um, can you tell us about your experience of coming out as non-binary, which you did live on air? Was it BBC Wiltshire? It was BBC Radio Wiltshire. I had moved there uh, for work to try and get some some more experience doing different bits and bobs and uh, regional and local news was really awesome and I love being part of that community and I, uh, in 2020, obviously so much, uh, so many Pride events couldn't take place, Swindon and Wiltshire Pride being one of them and I decided to run a Pride day on the radio station, which is what would have been the the day of Pride if it were to happen in real life. And it was great. And um, I got to present a show. It was my first live show on the BBC. And... um, Your first live show and you did that? (gasps) It was was my first live show on the BBC and I was talking about Sam Smith and I was talking about, you know, I'd just come out of a song by Diana Ross that I'm coming out and and I was going into Sam Smith and Sam Smith had sort of recently come out as non-binary and I was like, oh, now I've, now I've sort of, you know, said, oh, Speaking of, I'm coming out. Sam Smith's recently come out as non-binary, which means this. And I was like, oh, no, it's going to come out. I'm going to say it. It's going to happen. And I was just like, and this is what being non-binary is for me, who is non-binary. I've just come out. Here's a song. Woo! And was that song? You just said, I'm coming out. Was the song Diana Ross? Were you actually playing Diana Ross? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was like not a planned thing. I wasn't like, this wasn't like this whole thing that I'd had a producer and we like thought, well, let's have this moment on the radio and be really sensationist. It was just like, oh my God, I felt so exposed afterwards. And um, my friends were all listening because it was my first show. And I told maybe five people, less than five people. Um, and... They they were all listening and they were like, 
oh my god we have to celebrate that's the, that's what we're celebrating not the show we're celebrating that moment that you just had there and if it wasn't planned and it was spontaneous were you or are you now happy with the way it went or is there anything you would have done differently I kind of wish that I'd been able to uh, talk to all my friends and family about wanting to use they, them pronouns for me and identifying as non-binary because I understand that it can be quite hurtful for some of the closest people to me to find out in a way that, you know, Sue from Avebury found out at the same time as them. So it's not, you know, I I wish I had done that and had that conversation with them. I was at a point in my life where I was... um, it was bubbling away inside me and I knew it and I just wanted it to be a thing and I didn't in a in a way I didn't want to have all of those individual conversations I did it when I came out as bisexual and I didn't want to do it again and um yeah and I'm sure um actually people would respect that when they I mean you know if everybody if I look back over all the different stages of me coming out as gay I mean there's bits I would have changed but um you do the best you can mm. in the moment and as you say it's something that's bubbling up within you you can't push it down once you once you know it's going to come out it's quite hard isn't it yeah yeah it was and and on the whole i'm really happy with what happened I, there was a bit of fallout there was a bit of backlash trolling online stuff but um that in no that 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 is completely minuscule and completely irrelevant to the way that i feel about myself now and like the confidence that i have and just the way that i wake up every day and i'm like Yes. And have you noticed kind of attitudes changing towards non-binary people? Or rather, have you noticed in the time that you've been out more understanding? Because it was a relatively new concept for a lot of people a few years ago, even. I mean, Sam Smith, some of the conversations they were having were quite basic. Yeah. And I think like the word non-binary has is new and has has been relatively new um, especially when you compare it to something like gay or lesbian which has been around for a lot longer we're going to be um, talking about that later <laughs> it's, it's been around for a lot lot longer so I think um, it's nice to have language and words that I can identify with but um, a lot of people have no idea what it means and there is a sort of emotional labour or like labour that I have to do in order to try and explain that to people which is why you know if I go to a restaurant and somebody calls me ma'am I will just be like thank you here's here's my card can I pay the bill sometimes it's quite exhausting to always have to be educating isn't it yeah and I think um sometimes I'm just not in the mood to give a gender theory 101 lesson um sometimes I just want to have a nice time so and and the thing is, is that there are places where I have been, um, my my local bookshop, for example, where before I got to know the owner of the store, um, the bookshop owner had referred to me as she. And I said, oh, I'm non-binary. And then it was completely awesome. Like, there was no questioning, nothing. It was great. It was just like... Um, this person knew where I stood and knew where they stood and it was it completely wasn't an issue but sometimes it can be an issue and sometimes you just don't want it to become an issue it's interesting isn't it sometimes we can have such bad experiences that they um, that it colors our expectations and we can um, underestimate people or misjudge them do you know what I mean or what their what their reactions are going to be yeah I mean so my my mum, when I came out as as bisexual, um, didn't really get it at first. Um, 
Oh, it's interesting. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Bisexual. So that is, um, as opposed to pansexual, that's a very binary. Yeah, term. yeah. And you've gone from that to non-binary. Yeah, I mean, so I came out when I was at uni as bisexual because I was like, I like boys and I like girls and I don't know what to do. And um, I was just like sort of there floating through the world, being really confused about everything and very attracted to the vast majority of people. And I then um, realised that it was less about how I'm attracted to other people and more about how I am myself and like my relationship with myself and how I feel about my identity. So you know, I would still say that I come under the bisexual umbrella. I'm still attracted to people of the same sex and opposite sex. Um, I'm, but I'm also, you know, the word pansexual could be used to describe me. The word um, lesbian or dyke or whatever. Like there were so many different words out there and... We're going to be talking about yeah. all of them later. I, I interrupted when you were about to say something about your mum. Yeah, so when I came out to bise- as my mum to bisexual, as my mum's bisexual. <laughs> as I came out as bisexual to my mum, it was a big thing for her. She she didn't see it coming and it was just like, not pretty. It, everything's good. It's all good. Don't worry about it. But it was just a bit of a surprise. And when I came out to my mum as non-binary, I was like, mum, I'm going to sit you down. It was it was much more calm. It was much more sort of like... It, the, the the raw emotion had been taken out. We weren't having a shouting match at each other and I didn't say it to her in spite. So I can see why she had a bad reaction when I screamed it at her in the middle of an argument. But um, when, I, when I came out as non-binary, I sat her down and I was like, mum, look, I am, you know, still the same person and um, everything's good and I don't want things to change with us and I just, you know, I'm non-binary and... I don't really know what it means yet, but I just feel like this word works for me and this is, you know, what I I am. And my mum was like super supportive. She was 100% there and she goes, it doesn't matter what you are, who you are. You could be gay, straight, um, whatever you want to be. You could be pink, blue, green. I don't care. You'll always be my daughter. And I was like... <laughs> I love it though. I the positivity is great. The the intention. Yeah, the intention is a hundred percent there. But I was just like, <laughs> child, I'll always be your child. <laughs> the Sunday roast with Matt Cain, Virgin Radio Pride. Now we are going to be talking about anti-gay legislation in foreign countries and how best to combat it. For those who don't know, last month Hungary imposed a new law which restricts the promotion, in inverted commas, of homosexuality to under-18s. This includes in schools and on TV. Many have reacted with outrage, including Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, who said that Hungary has no business being in the European Union anymore. Lots of talk about whether the EU should be intervening. We know that they have voted to intervene. But the question for us now is, with politicians and even football teams reacting in condemnation, do we actually have the right to impose our liberal values on other countries? And if outside influences do manage to intervene and bring about a change in the law, 
Could this even provoke a backlash against LGBTQ plus people within the local population? I am delighted at this point to be joined by a guest who needs no introduction, but I'm going to give you one anyway. Michael Cashman first became known as an actor, rising to prominence playing gay character Colin Russell on EastEnders in 1987, portraying the first gay kiss in a British soap opera. I remember it well. Since then, he co-founded LGBTQ plus pressure group Stonewall and sat as a member of the European Parliament for 15 years, crucially leading a cross-party coalition to stem the rise of homophobia across the continent. As Baron Cashman of Limehouse, he's now a member of the House of Lords. Michael, welcome. Oh, it's lovely to be on your Sunday roast. I want some pot- lovely roast potatoes as a side dish. You can have all my spuds. <laughs> now, it's really interesting that, that that introduction, because there's so many things I, 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 I'm so eager to, to, to jump on. But I think one central thing, Matt, and I always did this and I still do, do it in the European Parliament, we've got to start talking about not Hungary doing something, but this Hungarian government. And when we had problems with Poland, I kept saying, this Polish government does not represent the decent women and men of Poland. Because if not, the government can then say, look, look what they're saying about our country. And they then call on a kind of a a natural patriotism. Uh, And the other thing... Sorry, uh, I was just going to say, we have been discussing in our previous discussion that not all of us in this room feel represented by our government. So by that token, I wouldn't want anybody to infer, to, you know, think that I think a certain way because of the way the government of this country thinks. Yes, uh, let me take something I'm passionate about, which is trans equality. You know, some some activists in other countries will say, look at what the British are doing. Look at what the, well, it's the English are doing. Um, uh, And of course it's not, it's a government which is failing to represent inclusivity and and fundamental human rights. Okay, right. So before we talk about the EU and this Hungarian government, can I just ask you as background, you famously set up Stonewall in response to Section 28 in this country, another government, Mm. many of us queer people at the time didn't think represented us. It's hard not to see comparisons between that law and the Hungarian law, the new law there, surely. Do you think? Well, uh, of course, there are uh, comparisons. It was introduced by Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government. Uh, uh, and of course, it, we must remember it's to get electoral support in Hungary, which we're going to be talking about. There's an election next year. So people play other people's rights uh, in order, they think, to get some support. But Shakespeare got it rather brilliantly when he said, the evil that men do lives on. The good is oft interred with their bones. And as an example, in Russia, we have the equivalent of Section 28. Um, in, in Hungary, they're now introducing a, a kind of bigger version of Section 28. Other countries have tried to introduce it. Um, and. Uh, Uh, As we recognised and our allies recognised, it was wrong for the people of this country. So 
Hungarian activists and their allies and those other countries, they're the ones who call for the support that we must give. But okay. there's also a selfish ar argument, which is our human rights should travel with us. Human rights are universal. Okay, right. You've brought up a lot there that I want to discuss in more detail. Before I open this up to our panel, can I just ask you, as a former member of the European Parliament, you've got a really good understanding of how other EU countries can influence the current Hungarian government's policies. Do you think the EU is right to be stepping in? Uh, of course, because when you join the European Union, and this is what Britain didn't like about it, you don't join uh, a club where you agree to some of the rules. You join a club where you have to abide by the law that you've agreed collectively you will make. And, and, and central to that uh, are laws around where, where the EU has what we call competence. For instance, in education. The EU does not have competence as the European Council and the European Commission, because countries haven't said, let's do this bit together. But where the EU has power and the European Commission and the European Court, if they don't take action, uh, then you have anarchy within uh, the Club of 27. So they, they have to. There's a, there's a legal obligation to step in. And I would also argue uh, a moral obligation. Okay, fantastic. Right. At this point, I want to bring in Shivani Darve. So, the, my question for you is, if countries like Hungary portray homosexuality as a foreign disease or queerness in general as a foreign disease that corrupts their local traditional values and we impose our ideas from outside, is there a danger that this solidifies public opinion against us amongst that local population? What do you think, Shivani? I think, you know, there are queer people all over the world and the queer people who are uh, queer or LGBTQ plus people who are in Hungary are going to think this is absolute nonsense because it's got nothing to do with people from anywhere. It's just who I am and it's who I was born as and, and part of me. And um, people who don't know much about our community might think that we are, you know, trying to take over the world with our agenda and yes I have my own agenda but it doesn't necessarily mean it's the same as your agenda Matt but it's it's one of those things that there unless there's enough education about the LGBTQ plus community let's call them conspiracy theories like that about us like will just continue to spread in in people who are scared because fear is a an incredible driving force and what do you think about bringing in pro lgbtq plus legislation before that education has taken effect well i think you're going to get people who are um always going to say that this is an agenda and that this is some sort of uh, mission for the LGBTQ plus community to take over the narrative and control what we're being taught in schools and seeing on the telly. And they can say what they want because it's at the end of the day fundamentally not true. If it was true, then we wouldn't have the um, high rates of mental health issues within our community. We wouldn't have um, all sorts of problems that we do within our community if we really had that much control over the, the world's governments. But... Um, I think it's important to acknowledge and to understand that um, homosexuality and uh, being trans or, or being non-binary and um, identifying with these different 
areas within the LGBTQ plus community has been something that has existed forever. And it's not this new fad or this new trend or this woke culture. It is something that has existed and there has been documentation of since pre-biblical times. And it's always been there and I think it always will be there. All right, Jake, very good point. Jake, um, this relationship between public opinion and legislation, I'd love to know what you think about it, because on one hand, we have the referendums, referenda, that we have had in certain countries for things like equal marriage. And that's great on one hand that things are decided by public opinion, but those of us whose existence is being debated have to sit there and watch it being debated by people against us. And then on the other hand, you've got things like... The Labour government of 1997 in this country, which brought in a lot of equality legislation, I'm sure Michael will have something to say about this, a lot of equality legislation, from what I remember it, ahead of public opinion, and there wasn't a backlash. What do you think is the relationship between the two? What order should things come in? I mean, for one thing, you know, to assume that all the countries where public opinion might be supportive of equal marriage or equal rights for LGBTQIA people, the you know, that that public opinion would override a lot of these governments where they have dictatorships, Brazil, for instance. Um, you know, I think that's that's kind of seeing things in a very positive light. You know, obviously, historically, people have looked to countries like the US and the UK because we were quite progressive in our views and our outlooks. And a lot of the countries around the world would look to us for, you know, how to how to handle LGBTQIA issues. Obviously, the US in the last four years has turned back time horrifically and there's been an awful flip, a sort of backlash. And it's now looking pretty grim in the US. And obviously, that does feel like it's trickled over into our own government. As we know, our equalities minister does not believe that transgender women should necessarily be in women's spaces and public bathrooms and so on and so forth. So, you know, I think it has all become quite worrying and I think the public opinion in this country is that we should all be equal, largely, and I think our government at this point, it does not feel certainly to myself as a trans man and to my wife as a trans woman that that is being reflected and this is in a fairly progressive country. So in a country like Poland or Hungary, you can only imagine what the, you know, the public opinion, how that would be influenced by the government and those legislations. That's interesting, actually, because, Michael, you have said publicly before that you see similarities between the demonisation of trans people now and the demonisation of gay men in the 80s. Do you think, before we start to preach to other countries about how they should treat their minorities, we need to put our own house in order first? Uh, I don't think uh, you do either. You do both. Oh, great Uh, answer. (laughs) Either, either you believe in fundamental human rights uh, or you don't. But, but I, there are a couple of issues. First of all, Britain hasn't always been progressive. If you look at what we did with our colonization of the world, mm. importing our religions uh, and draconian laws, criminalizing uh, LGBTQI people where it was perfectly uh, acceptable and perfectly ordinary. Uh, and we weren't. We we began the change in this country. Before that, it's a really interesting thing about progressive countries. People should remember that in the 1930s, particularly British gay men, used to leave the UK to go to Germany, to live in Berlin, where they could be themselves and they could be free. 
And when we see where intolerance begins to creep in, because intolerance never goes away, opposition never goes away. The stigmatization, the misrepresentation uh, of, of trans people is an example, day in, day out. And so you have to, uh, as politicians, work in advance of public opinion. The courage to lead. In 1967, the Wilson government partially decriminalized homosexuality with an equal age of 21. It gave women the right to choose to have an abortion or not. It ended capital punishment, corporal punishment, and introduced the concept of equal pay for women. If you'd gone on the street and done a straw poll of public opinion, they would not have supported those measures. That's what politics is about, the courage to do what is right for the long term. And that's what the Blair government coming in in 1997, because we all of us from Section 28 said, if you want to fight with our community and our allies, we will fight back. And so Section 28 became law. And then we worked so that when a change of government came in, we had made the arguments across the mainstream parties, depoliticizing it. And, and, and Jake is absolutely right. The concept of equality doesn't harm anyone. In fact, it enhances the societies we live in because the rules are simple. We have the equal protections of the law, the equal opportunities of the law, and we abide by the same rules. And that allows us to then target those who do not abide by the same laws and the same rules. Michael, that is brilliant. I feel all roused and stirred. I've got goosebumps. <laughs> but we got, <laughs> That'll a lot. be the gravy on the roast. <laughs> <laughs> I want to bring in now some listener comments. Marcus on Instagram says, we absolutely cannot allow this bigotry to continue. Yes, he, he is in favour of intervening. Um, Frog on Facebook says, these are human rights we're talking about, though, not liberal ideas as such. So, yes, we must stand up to the regimes that are barbaric in all ways. Sanctions have been imposed on countries for abuse of human rights and this is the fact here. You may be extremely right-wing religious and not have your beliefs changed but you shouldn't be able to impose punishments on others for moral crimes or force people to be legally second-class citizens. How is it different to an apartheid genocide Taliban-esque gender discrimination? We don't stand up to this enough. Jake, so um, what are the ways that countries can influence the human rights of other countries? So we've got the specific case of the EU, which Michael, I'm going to ask about in more detail from his experience. But there's also things like economic sanctions, boycotting, withdrawing foreign aid to countries that persecute queer people, or only giving foreign aid under certain conditions. Um, How much do you think we should... I don't necessarily want to use the word interfere, but how much should we thrust ourselves into the domestic affairs of other countries? I think it's a responsibility. I think you know we are fortunate that we have money for funding. We, you know, we, uh, for instance, my wife who works for a big bank, HSBC, they are working. She, you know, when she travels to India, she doesn't necessarily feel safe as a transgender woman, and she would always try not to 
go by Dubai, which quite often they sort of, you know, schedule that as a stop off because she wouldn't feel safe being there. And she has already begun conversations or, you know, these these are conversations that are going on and that we find in a lot of the corporations we speak to where there is a real push towards using economic sanctions and you know, just whether it's down to having a big base in one of the countries where they know that their LGBT workers would not be safe, would not be welcomed, that now is starting to, to be sort of withdrawn because why on earth would you put that level, that support there? And just very quickly to go back to, to Michael's sort of previous um, reference to the demonisation of trans people nowadays, going back, harking back to the demonisation of gay men some 60, 70 years ago. You know, this whole argument around bathrooms, and it is, it's been around bathrooms for... It's always obsessed, you know, obsession with bathrooms. A hundred years ago, it was, you know, poor white people didn't want black people in their bathrooms. Uh, 80 years ago, it was, you know, straight men didn't want gay men looking at them at the urinals in their bathrooms. At the moment, it's now poor women don't want trans women in their bathrooms. It has never been about bathrooms, just like it's not about sports. It is about bashing down minorities and holding people back and basically keeping out those smaller groups that you just don't feel comfortable around. Here, 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 here. Okay, right. So before we go back to Michael, I want to ask Shivani. So we're talking about whether how much we can um, influence other countries and their human rights legislation. Um, if we're talking about intervening to protect the human rights of LGBTQ plus people in Hungary, shouldn't we also do the same to countries that persecute other minorities and in which case you know where do we what about countries where women don't have the same rights as men and you know talking about boycotts sanctions where do we stop what about an economic superpower like china with its atrocious record on human rights what do you think about this the bigger picture this is this is the point where I'm going to say I am so glad I'm not a politician because <laughs> these are massive issues and I would not want to be the person responsible for dealing with any of them because if I had my way you know I wouldn't want to um, absolve every single c- country of their culture and their their um, own identities but I think human rights basic human rights of treating people, all people, whether you're cis, trans, non-binary, like whatever race you are, whatever religion you are, whatever age you whatever are. Whatever gender you are. Every <laughs> single thing, right? No matter what it is that about you that makes you different, I just feel like every single person in the world should have basic human rights to be treated fairly and equally with their, like, counterparts. And... Um, I think, you know, I would I would like our government to be able to make a stand and say, hey, we're not going to do any business with you unless you sort this out. But um, Is that realistic? No, from having read the news, no. And that's why but- you're glad you're not a politician. <laughs> yes. All right, Michael, so Shivani is glad they're not a politician. <laughs> you are a politician. Let me put to you something one of our listeners, Matt, on Facebook has said, surely we can say, these are our values, say to Hungary, these are our values and if you don't share them then you can't be in this club the eu isn't that the point of the eu a pooling of interests and ideals and given the genesis of the eu and its principal guiding purpose as being opposite to fascism it simply must respond to those who act as hungary and poland in brackets are doing please can you tell us in your amazing autobiography which i absolutely loved there's a really memorable chapter where in your um 
role as a member of the European Parliament, you go to, I think it's Poland, on a Pride March, and you're talking about how to bring about better acceptance of LGBTQ people there. And obviously these these Eastern European countries had to improve their human rights record to get membership of the EU. Can you tell us about your experiences as an MEP and in Eastern European countries and what you learned from them? Okay, let me say um, sanctions, boycotts. Um, We have to be really careful that we don't end up punishing um, the citizens of those countries. There's a really clever way of of getting economic clout, and that is the multinationals like um, uh, HSBC that Jake referred to. uh, They have uh, diversity networks, all of the big multinationals. And so you get them saying to countries like Poland or Hungary or Russia or countries in Africa, we'd love to bring in key talent in order to develop our business further. But if you carry on with the anti-LGBTQ, whatever, or anti-women or anti-religion, because we have to join hands with everybody else on this planet, defend the other, defend the difference and and companies quietly put the case for the economic consequences of inequality and the benefits that flow from equality in the eu they have trade agreements and i think it's article two of the trade agreements is human rights democracy and the rule of law and it gives the eu uh, the ability to suspend trade agreements um, the actions that that uh, we took uh, when countries like Bulgaria, Romania, uh, Poland and others were coming in was to say, these are the fundamental uh, laws. These are the fundamental rights. You have to sign up to them all. And what you was can- what was the situation like on the ground when these countries did sign up to them all? But public opinion would, I imagine, in some cases, be lagging behind by some distance. What yes. was the um, situation like that you observed? Well, uh, twofold. First of all, I said to the prime minister of Bulgaria uh, when they were talking about the difficulty on bringing in not only these measures, but but measures around children and institutions and, and disability. Uh, I said, look, everybody else blames the EU. So blame us. Say so you've got to do this in order to come in. Going back to Hungary, we had a, an online discussion with Hungarian activists uh, in Parliament last week, uh, and they were saying that the Hungarians are desperate to become more European, to become more central to how the EU develops. And, and, and again, going back, there is always unpopularity with change and people resist change. And therefore, supporting activists on the ground, supporting people who come out, and that's how we made amazing advances in this country from, from uh, uh, the 1980s when the, they introduced the anti-gay law, the first anti-LGB law in 100 years. People came out, we led the campaign, and people go, oh my God, they're ordinary. They're as exciting, as mundane as the rest of us. And that is how you make progress. Okay, right. I want to put this to Jake 
Michael said before that very rousing final <laughs> line, he made the point that there is a role to play for corporates and multinationals. Do you think um, they should intervene or do you think they've got less um, motivation to if actually the reason they exist is to make a profit and it's more government's responsibility? I think, once again, it should be a responsibility. You know, if you are one of these multi, these ginormous countries, uh, sorry, companies that is that has offices, you know, all across the world, then use your clout. And a lot of them now are, you know, if if you look at the statistics, I think it's something ridiculous, like 75% of young people now, when they're moving towards a company and thinking about their future careers coming out of university, want to be working for, a, in, for an inclusive and diverse company that is eliciting positive change around the world. And these young people will look to these organisations and think, A, are they doing enough for every sort of diversity strand? But also, if I wanted to work in one of their offices in Dubai or in India or in Poland, would I be safe if I were, you know, a woman, if I were LGBT identified, if I were black? And I think that that in itself should be a driver. And I think, you know, these, these companies, it all, the more money they're pouring into into countries to sort of elicit positive positive change it's all cyclical it looks better for them and it is all about PR let's face it if they're doing it for only a purely PR reason then it's better than not doing it at all oh absolutely Shivani Michael also said that a really powerful way to provoke change is for us as people outside those countries to work with local LGBTQ plus pressure groups and charities within these countries Um, do you think that's the way forward? Or I, a way forward. I think it's part of the way forward. I think um, it's it's a multi-pronged approach, but I think it's definitely something that um, will help. Um, also, partly because you know, I I've never been to Hungary. I don't know what it's actually like there. I don't know what they, what changes and what support and what what they actually need on the ground in order to be able to help with this um, with this situation that they're in so i think the 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 first and foremost what we need to do is we need to hear from the people there on the ground who are you know fighting this battle head on rather than people who are uh, very loud on twitter who can say lots of things but actually have no clue what what the actual challenge is okay right so we've not got long left michael shivani just said they have never been to hungary neither have i is there a danger when we're having these discussions that we stray into cultural ideological arrogance is there an element of prejudice prejudice sometimes that creeps in looking down on Eastern Europeans as somehow inferior to us. I can see your mouth twitching. I can't work (laughs) out whether that's a smile. What do you think? Um, You know, I I haven't been to many countries, but I have to imagine what if what if I were born there? What if that were me? And if I wouldn't want that to happen to me, then how dare I sit back in the luxury of equality and allow it to happen to others. That's the principle of equality. That's the principle of defending the other. And as I've been saying, when I mentioned that that if you surrender one group's rights, history shows us that that doesn't satisfy the crocodile that's eating the rights. They want more and more and more. I went to Bulgaria on, I think it was their third uh, their first, their second Pride March, uh, and there was hostility. When I went back on the third and fourth, 
less hostility, progress. Something I remember really clearly, and I know we haven't got time, but when I went to Romania, there were about 300 of us on the Pride March and a thousand police, water cannons, helicopters, protecting us from the crowd. When I went back next year, I met uh, a husband and a wife, and they were there with their 18-year-old daughter, and they had a little sign in Romanian that said, we're proud of our lesbian daughter. The previous year, they had stood on the pavement and didn't have the courage or, 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 the, or, or, or felt that they could join us. The fact that three people did the next year shows you what coming out and standing with others does. Whether you're, whether you're a part of a minority that's under threat or not, you have to imagine what if that were me and you have to stand with them. And then we achieve the universality of human rights and human rights as it was said earlier on the on the Facebook uh, that you that you read out in Europe, human rights were born out of the Second World War that we would never look away again when a minority was targeted, dehumanized, and scapegoated. Out of that came the European concept. Michael, I don't just feel roused and stirred. I feel <laughs> positive. That's such a brilliant way to end. I feel positive. I feel like we can do this. Great. So thank well, you. We can, only, we can only do it together. My slogan is we achieve together, only together. You are brilliant. I'm going to use the P word. It has been a privilege to have you on. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. And now we're having a little breather to chat to the lovely Jake Graff. Jake, tell us, you are one of the most visible trans men in the UK. You've been named in the Out 100 list, the Guardian's LGBT power list, the Independence Rainbow list. All that's brilliant. But I, what I want to know is... Does being one of so few trans male role models, does it make you feel under any pressure? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, when you say I'm one of the most visible, there aren't that many out there. There's about three. So, you know, it's not that high of an accolade. Um, does it make me feel pressure? I feel that it's very important for all of us as queer LGBT people to, if we are able to, and if it's safe for us to in our family and workplace and so on, to be visible. Because I grew up without any visible role models, what's, or indeed any role models. I never saw, you know, I, I only met another trans man when I was 25 years old, and it led to all sorts of you know destructive behavior thinking i was the only one in the world i was a misery until until basically i met someone like me you know there's that whole like you can't be you if you can't see you yeah, yeah and yeah. i think it is so important for us who are slightly older and wiser potentially um <laughs> to be an example for the younger generation not even an example of this is how you do it but just you, this is how it can be there can be hope and happiness and love and marriage and kids and babies and relationships and successful jobs and acceptance and i think you know for me that is why I'm visible and it feels like a massive privilege to be honest to even be here and to be able to do that So when you do things like the brilliant Channel 4 documentary you did last year about becoming a parent with Hannah um, is that always kind of on your mind um, that you need to be as visible as possible? I think, you know, we're very fortunate, Hannah and I, in that we, you know, we're white, we're middle class, we're very, very lucky. We've had acceptance from our family, acceptance from our friends, which is not the case for a lot of transgender people, not just here, but across the world. As we know, we live in a country where essentially it's fairly safe 
we you know you think to be trans and to be queer um you know for me it just feels like it's important particularly with what's going on in the world you know in the uk as you may be aware and i'm sure you are the media has really had you know sort of put together a fairly sustained onslaught against the transgender community for the last five years and most people i think it's something like 89 percent of people have not knowingly met someone transgender which means that we do remain these shadowy figures that all you're getting the only information you're getting is you know watching matty barton on emmerdale or reading the newspapers and even some of the left-wing newspapers like the guardian mm. have have really really written some very very transphobic content and the problem is if there's so few visible trans people in the public eye if there's going to be any backlash you're going to get it well i mean weirdly again we've been quite lucky when we've talked about becoming parents yes we have had some horrendous stuff said to us usually on twitter because that's where it's all at um you know if you can't have children the normal way you should be kept away from children and you know you should have been drowned at birth and you know all that usual happy cheerful stuff that we get (laughs) but i think you know largely we have because we try and keep it positive and because we try and remain as unpolitical as possible we've sort of swerved a lot of that which you know i see a lot of our friends and a lot of our colleagues and a of our fellow community members getting getting it daily and I really feel for them and you know I think Twitter I've pretty much signed off from because whenever I post a tweet the onslaught and it is an onslaught and I see it happen to other people and you know they're blocking people and they're making their accounts private and you know I just think why not just switch off Twitter to be honest. Oh absolutely Um, I suppose the interesting thing is there are some people who think they have an ideological issue with trans people or um, an academic theoretical issue and actually when people like you share human stories about you as individual human beings um, not to put any more pressure on you but (laughs) you can change their minds because they see it's not an academic debate it's about people yeah, I mean, we've had some lovely things said to us. When the doc came out, actually, Hannah in particular got quite literally thousands of messages from largely cisgender women saying, you know, I didn't carry my own child and I know that I love my child just as much. I know that I'm a parent. I know that you're a real woman just as much as I am. I mean, the, the support and the love and acceptance that she got. We also had a guy on who listened to us doing a radio thing who messaged and said, you know, I'm 76. I've always had a negative view of trans people. I didn't know any. I've listened to your interview and I'm ashamed to say that you know I felt that way and now having listened to you both I will rethink my views on transgender people and if one person says that if one person feels that way then surely it's worth all of the kind of putting ourselves out there well it's working it's absolutely working another cause close to your heart and I know this because I'm also an ambassador for AKT the charity AKT you are a patron I think and it's the national LGBT plus Youth Homelessness Charity. Now, I know this because of my work with AKT, but it saw a 118% increase in new referrals. That's young people needing their support during the first lockdown compared to that same period the previous year. You know, so, and this is this was mainly with young people who'd had to leave home after tensions rose during lockdown. Mm. So what's your take on this? Do you think these people are kind of a forgotten um, casualty of COVID? I mean, I know I think AKT is such a wonderful charity and does such amazing things. I mean, obviously there was its rather bittersweet 30th anniversary a couple of years ago. And, you know, talking to, to Tim 
Sigsworth, you know, the, the CEO and the kind of founder. And, and, you know, he was saying, obviously, it's very sad that we even are still here 30 years later. Mm. And the fact that these numbers are rising. And I know there's this belief that particularly, in fact, apparently among trans kids, they're seeing a lot more trans kids coming out and being kicked out like rubbish by their parents. And, you know, there's this whole sort of feeling that, you know, it's a trend and that it's a fad and that because it's on TV and because it's on YouTube that these kids are being forced into it or talked into it. And it's just, you know, as we've already discussed today, the more visibility there is, the more representation, the more these kids feel safe to come out. And unfortunately, you know, they're seeing this view of, well, there's so many now, you know, there are parents in the news, there are big celebrities, you know, celebrating and and supporting their transgender kids. It's going to be okay. And then they come out and unfortunately it all goes horribly wrong and they end up on the street. And as you know, that can then fall into sex work and drug abuse. And it's very hard once you're on the street to get off the street. But, you know, AKT has quite literally turned around the lives of so many young people and I know that having spoken to a lot of the the trans kids that we know and the trans youth that we know being at home and being misgendered during lockdown I mean it was tough enough anyway they're away from their chosen family they're not being respected in their names in their correct gender and it must be I mean it it's heartbreaking having been that child who wasn't listened to and I wasn't listened to in a cruel way I was listened to because it was 1980s London Maggie Thatcher was was raging away with section 28 and my parents didn't have a clue what was wrong but nowadays it's very much a you know these parents are aware of what it is and they make that choice and if they chose choose to throw away their kids like like they're nothing to them then unfortunately you know they have to be picked up and thank god there is an AKT and just as you're saying that I'm feeling a little flurry of kind of just like oh you know, there's so much work still to be done. It hits you, doesn't it, occasionally? And you think, oh, <laughs> it's almost exhausting just thinking about how much we've still got to fight and fight and fight. And between all that, you somehow manage to fit in being a successful actor and director and you're making a new film with the producer of God's Own Country. I am. Well, I'm, I'm trying. I literally just shot a couple of weeks ago the guest lead on an episode of Doctors, which not many people will know, but is where Idris Elba and Eddie Redmayne got their big breaks. So who knows what the future may hold for me? That's fantastic. It was, um, it was wonderful. It was a trans storyline. I'm not going to ruin it, but it's out in September and, and that's that's all very exciting. And, and my film is, yeah, being produced by the, the sort of double powerhouse of uh, Manon, who did the who did God's, God's Own Country, and Dee Ryder, who is a trans woman who produced um, the McQueen documentary. So I've got a kick-ass production company people behind me and hopefully this film will get made at the moment we're looking for production money it's a film called lavender and it is about transgender gay transgender man who becomes pregnant and with no one else to tend to in the world seeks out his estranged uh religious catholic french uh grandmother in the south of france and kind of goes to her for help and support and she makes him realize that what he's doing and having this child is the most natural thing in the world it's going to be on anything anyone has ever seen. <laughs> Fantastic. I love it already. And if anybody's listening who do has, has some money, you heard him. Get in touch. He's on social media. <laughs> Give him your money. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. My brilliant panellists, Shivani Darve and Jake Graff, are still here. And now we're going to be talking about the best way to describe our community. Or should I say, what's the best, clearest, most inclusive way to describe our very diverse community? So, I've worked with several individuals and organisations that have used the acronym LGBT, others that prefer LGBTQIA. Here at Virgin Radio Pride, we have opted for a house style of LGBTQ+. But many people 
that's people from within our community but also allies for mainstream society have complained that this is confusing. So if we want to communicate who we are clearly and succinctly, do we need to just step back and have a little think about it? And how do we feel about the umbrella term that's adopted by many? How do we feel about the word queer? I am delighted that at this point we are joined by Sophie Holmes Elliott, who is a variationist, sociolinguist and a lecturer at Queen Mary University of London. She's particularly interested in the linguistic development of children and how shifts in language contribute to change across communities, as well as the relationship between language and gender, looking into how gendered speech patterns emerge in adult language and how they develop into recognisable styles. There's so much I want to ask you about, Sophie. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. But I want to start off, first of all, so for a lot of people, the word queer, it still feels like a slur and an insult. But as language changes over time and its use changes over time, do you think reclaiming words like this for positive use in the community is successful or is it even fully possible? I would say yes and no, <laughs> a typical academic answer there. <laughs> um, I think um, when we see this term queer used by the community, you know, for the community, it's unambiguously positive usually. Um, it's The context is clear. We know how people are using it and why they're using it. On the other hand, when it's used for by members who are outside the community, it's difficult to tell, you know, um, can this be positive or is this actually still being used as a slur? And I think that really tells us something about language. It's, it's all about positionality, isn't it? It's who you are and how you relate to this term. So I think we've seen a lot of positive um, strides forward with the term queer. The fact that, you know, we've seen it kind of reclaimed in academia and now it's getting into sort of wider parlance. Um, and eventually maybe it will become more of a neutral term. I think we've got a way to go yet. Um, but I feel quite optimistic about it. I mean, it's it's the term I would prefer to use. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so could you talk to us about some other words and how um, our understanding of them has changed? So, for example, I would love to know as a gay man um, a little bit about the history of the word gay and when it became popular. Um, mm. Well, I did my, my Susie Dent homework for this, actually, um, and looked this up um, before I came on the show. So... Uh, a potted etymology of the word gay it actually came from French. So um, it came over to us with the uh, the Norman invasion. And at the time it meant sort of bright, lively looking, particularly with um, colors and um, uh, appearance. And that could be to describe anything. So that could be horses, houses, clothes, etc. And then what we see over the centuries is it goes through a series of semantic changes. And the first of these is in around the 15th century, it becomes associated with people. And these people are um, described as lighthearted, carefree, um, characterized by or disposed to joy and mirth, like all positive attributes. And then what we see during the Protestant Reformation and their emphasis on ruining fun in all its forms, <laughs> the term starts to develop these negative associations. And what we have by the time uh, the 18th century rolls around is that it's linked to things like hedonism, frivolity and people who are dedicated to social pleasure, which for me sounds fantastic, um, but not, <laughs> not to the Protestants so much. And this is where we can see terms like um, gay abandon develop, so a carefree or expansive manner 
with a lack of consideration for the consequences of action. And at this point, it also becomes associated with sex work. Oh, that's interesting. Um, so long ago. Yeah. And then at about uh, the turn of the 20th century, uh, it emerges as a slang term to denote a uh, personal place re- relating to homosexual people, as the uh, Oxford English Dictionary puts it. Primarily men, though not exclusively, uh, and we can see it in the work of Gertrude Stein and things like that. Uh, and then it goes through a sort of gradual, um, what we call semantic bleaching. It loses those sort of more negative connotations. And by the 80s, it's quite a neutral term. So we can see it in things like travel guides, um, you know, um, to describe places like New York or San Francisco as kind of gay centres uh, of tourism and things like that. And then, of course, in the 80s, we have the AIDS epidemic. So it starts to get uh, more negative connotations. Um, so that's kind of a potted history of where that term's come from. Um, and, and, that's, uh, and how it's got those different associations. And I'm about to open this up to our panel, but could you give us a little summary of the impact that the language we use has on our identities, if you think there is an impact? Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, something that really comes through, especially when you're in an oppressed group, is that you've really had to fight hard to feel a certain amount of pride um, in your identity. So things like uh, terms and labels become really, really valuable. Um, So when we think about people, um, you know, maybe accusing the LGBT community of gatekeeping, actually, I think what they're doing there is a bit of cultural preservation. So, um, you know, these things are a hard one. So we really want to hang on to them, I think, is is what happens with um, language and identity. It's a way of actually positioning yourself in the world and um, relating to other people. That's brilliant. Thank you very much for that. I would love to know now what, Jake Graff, (laughs) what do you think is the best way to describe our wider community? I think very quickly, just to go back to the gay word, there's also been the evolution now that kids are all calling, oh, you're so gay, or that's so gay, or those shoes are so gay, which there was a big campaign by Stonewall, you know, do not use the word gays. I can't remember what the catchy slogan of that campaign was, but it wasn't as badly as I've just said it. But, you know, now you do hear it walking down the street, oh, God, it's so gay, or those chips are so gay, the chips are so... I mean, the stupidity of the use of that word now... Um, but um, as to the word queer, I you know I remember a couple of years ago when I first used it or first started using it, my mother saying to me, "Oh my God, don't say that, darling. That's an awful word." And I had to explain to her, actually, it's not, and it's a very sort of all-encompassing, inclusive word, which to me it feels like. But I know that to a lot of older gay men that I speak to, I wouldn't use that word around them because I know that for them it is very traumatic and very triggering because it has throwbacks to the ways that they were called possibly, you know, as youths or, you know, into into middle age and so on. But then those are quite frequently the same men who are saying, oh God, LGBTQIA, what a load of nonsense, you know, that's WXYZ. They're the people who need to come up with a solution. Well, that's it. And so for me, (laughs) I've got to say, I like the word queer. It feels encompassing it feels inclusive it feels a little bit political and for me that is certainly the word that I would use to call myself as someone who's lived as a lesbian lived as a trans man lived as a gay man lived as a pan man queer god it's great Right, okay. Before I ask Shivani for their opinion, I just want to bring in a couple of listener comments. John Paul on Facebook. So these are the positive ones first. I love being called queer. JD on Twitter. Queer works as one word for the community. The list of letters can 
continues to grow as we continue to include all distinct members, but at some point the letter list becomes unworkable as a communication vehicle. Simon on Twitter, I'm comfortable being referred to as queer by and only by other queers, which actually picks up on something Sophie said earlier. And then I have to say the overwhelming response from older LGBTQ plus people was negativity. Stephen Barrett, for example, on Twitter, I hate the word. Doesn't matter that we claimed it back. It was used so aggressively to me when I first came out. It still offends me. Horse McDonald, the amazing lesbian musician, I hate queer. It was yelled at me over years as an insult. No amount of reclaiming it will make it easier to take on. Lesy in inverted commas too. So not even in, in jest do I like or accept accept that either. Shivani, what do you think about the word queer? I think you, I think, you know, if we want to be inclusive and you know, represent people in the best way, we need to take the words that they want us to describe them as and use that to describe them. So, you know, if somebody tells me they don't like the word queer to describe them, I won't use that word. If they prefer the word gay, I will use that. But, you know, there, there are so many words that people have different associations with and identify with in different ways. Um, and and lesbian being one of them there are lots of uh women who i know who are in our community who will not like the word lesbian to be used for them but really like the word gay or mm. queer mm. and mm. i think it's it's a really mm. interesting thing and um like i'm 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 not smart enough to understand why but i know that that's a thing that people uh, identify with or not with and i just do my best to try and respect that it's interesting, isn't it, when you try and come up, when if we were to try and come up with a term to um, cover us all, everybody has to be happy with it and you've got a problem there before you even start. Sophie, coming back to you, I just want to read a comment from Mark on Twitter. He says, if you, and this keys into something you were saying earlier about um, how labels can make us feel about ourselves. Mark says, if you tell me I'm LGBTQ+, I'm proud and I stand tall. Call me queer and I feel small and uncomfortable different. It's a horrid term that was intentionally used to make me feel that way. I can't own that word. I want to run from it. Sophie, what do you say to this? Yeah, and I think this is one of the things um, that's really interesting about language is that we do have a real emotional connection to it. So, um, you know, we like to think that we can sort of separate ourselves politically and, and use neutral terms, but there's no such thing as a neutral word. So I completely understand why if somebody's um, had a slur yelled at them, they're not going to be able to reclaim it um, and feel uh, unemotional towards that. And I think one of the problems that comes up when we try and find a huge term to cover all of us is that we're missing out the fact that there are lots of different types of people who are gay, queer, however they want to identify. And actually, we wouldn't try and do this for other groups, for instance. You know, um, we'd accept that there's a lot of diversity here. And one of the things I was thinking was, well, maybe what we need to think of is Queer is um, a politicised term uh, that refers to a subsection of us um, who are happy to identify that way. And then maybe we need a bigger term, uh, LGBTQ plus might be the one we use, um, that refers to everybody, but we're accepting that there's a lot of diversity and, and range within that. So um, I think exactly as Shivani said, it's about respecting somebody's own a relationship with the word. I kind of want to pick up on that because I'm, you can't see me, but I'm brown. So I often fit into the BAME or BAME categories of a lot of different things. And 
um, I don't identify with BAME. Like, yes, people will use that term to describe me because I am brown and, you know, therefore an ethnic minority, but, uh, or Asian is the, the bit that I would fit under. But I am not BAME because, by definition of BAME, I am not black, Asian, and minor- minority <laughs> ethnic. I'm not all of those things. Um, and I think the same with LGBTQIA+. It's, yes, it's great that we are trying to be an inclusive um, community, but this is this is something I see that really bugs me when it comes to Pride Month, particularly, and a lot of pinkwashing, is the fact that people, or not people, it'll be organisations and companies that will say, we're really proud to support the LGBTQIA plus community, and then they'll have, like, you know, loads of really attractive cis gay white men with six packs in tank tops and I'm like here for it love the artwork see what you've done there but that's not representative of the LGBTQIA plus community don't bring in you know lesbian rights or or bisexual rights or uh, trans rights or intersex rights or any of those other communities if you're not actually going to try and represent them Clive on Facebook has got in touch to say I dislike BAME for implying white as the norm and othering anyone that doesn't have white skin. I'm starting to feel the same about LGBTQ plus othering anyone not hetero and lumping us all in together, basically. Sophie, as our expert, what do you think about this idea of all of us being lumped in together? Is 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 the sense of othering anybody who isn't cis and hetero implied in that? Well, I think, um, sadly, we can't get away from the fact that if you are, you know, cis, white, hetero, you have a privileged position in society. And I don't think by um, labelling a community, we're actually contributing to that. And actually, that's one of the reasons I really like the term queer, because, um, you know, it's, it's personally, I like it, but also academically, it's really good because it actually causes us to question Um, and also challenge these dominant power structures. So we can extend a sort of queer analysis beyond just gender and sexuality, and we can think about it in terms of things like disability and race and all of those sorts of default positions because we're suddenly thinking, okay, how else can we be? How else can we exist? Um, So I I totally understand where he's coming from, but I think actually we've got a lot of power um, in invoking this term queer to challenge these dominant power structures and to actually call out othering where we find it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because just looking at those of us in this discussion, there's a lot of diversity going on, whether it's sexuality or gender identity. Do you think, therefore, Jake, it is important to come up with some kind of term that um, presents us in our all our diversity to the rest of the world? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what that would be. I don't think there is an answer because, you know, I mean, I was remember, I was literally, you know, I spent 10 years as part of the lesbian scene. And when I joined, I was 16 and I was called a little baby dyke. And all the women I used to hang around with, you know, we were dykes. We used that word. It was dykes and it was it was great. And then I realised when I began my transition and obviously I started growing a beard and I'd use the word dyke and people would look at me in horror because I looked like a man using this slur. And so I'd stop using it. And then I had trans friends who I think, you know, we were all kind of, it was all a bit edgy. We used to hang around in Dalston and so on. And the word <laughs> tranny was thrown around a lot. You know, as a friend, L-A-U-L tranny, how's it going, love? And I know even now saying this, 
this word will be triggering a lot of people listening, as was the word dyke, as will be the word queer. And yet these for us were words that felt very empowering, that felt important and were a real identity. But I have now stopped using the word tranny unless it's with my wife or a very close friend, because I know that for a lot of our community, it literally is like you know glass down their down their ears in the down their ears you know what i mean <laughs> yes, it's terrible yeah i have to say i find the discussion of how language evolves and its meaning evolves fascinating um i would love to ask you sophie was telling us about how the word gay has changed over time when i was growing up people used to say routinely transsexual mm. so the shift to transgender as we all know um, i'm sure most people listening will know why that is important and a very important shift. Could you tell us about how you experienced this shift and why why you see it as being so important for the trans community? Or had it already happened by the time you were transitioning? I mean, when I, mean, when I was a kid, the word transgender didn't exist. It was transsexual and it was always negative. There was all this this implication that we changed sex, you know. You were sex born swap. a girl and now you've changed into a man. I was always a man. I've always felt like a man since I was two years old. And I would say to my mum on a daily basis, I'm a boy. Please, someone listen to me. I know I'm a boy. So for me, it was really just kind of realigning body to mind. I still say, and I know this is frowned upon by a lot of the younger people I work with and talk to through Mermaids and AKT, I still feel like I was born in the wrong body. And I know to a lot of people now, the younger generation, that is also seen as inflammatory. You know, the the word transgendered, which a lot of our community still uses, or cisgendered, as opposed to transgender or cisgender, is also now frowned upon by the younger community. You know, language is evolving at such an alarming rate, which is great, but I think, you know, we're all trying to catch up. I spoke to a young person the other day who told me that they were um, pansexual demiandrogyne. And I was lost because <laughs> I was like, great. I don't know at all what that means. But I think it's wonderful that you have found a way to identify. But I think, you know, the when I hear transsexual now, it really grates on my ear. Um, and I know that transgender is certainly the one that we feel is more all-encompassing for our very, very broad community. But there are people who will identify as transgender non-binary or that will identify as trans mask non-binary. You know, there is so much evolution. It is endless. Well, and it's interesting as well. We're discussing this. But Sophie, without any kind of governing body or elected representatives to um, represent our community, can we ever actually choose a label isn't the point with language that it just develops and evolves organically you know in some ways are the words that other people use to describe us out of our control yeah i think so and actually thinking about what um jake was just saying there with this um you know all these new terms emerging and it is difficult to keep up but actually it's so exciting because what you see when something becomes um, you know, there's a revolution going on. So, for instance, something like when the, the birth of the internet or the computer, our lexicon just gets flooded with all these new terms that then become very unremarkable after a while. And I think that's hopefully what's going to happen here as well. We're going to have all of these new terms. We're going to be so used to talking about them that actually we'll just settle on one eventually and, and we'll all be quite happy with it, hopefully. Um, and, and um, you know, we'll get this whole new vocabulary um, and it won't be, um, you know, off-putting or um, intimidating for people who don't understand uh, what those things mean. I mean, a lot of people felt that way when the internet came as well. So, 
Yes, no, absolutely. Right, I want to I want to find out Shivani's opinion, but before I do, just a few more listener comments. Angela on Facebook, who identifies as a straight ally, I'll be honest, I find, this is the letters, I find it all a little confusing these days with so many different terms and my main worry is I don't want to offend anyone or upset anyone by getting it wrong. Sarah on Facebook, I too get confused with all the labels and question their purpose, especially after working for years with children with additional needs when we were moving heaven and earth to eradicate labels. My label is my name. Everything else is me. Adrian on Twitter, I wish we could find an inclusive, positive word or phrase that embraces us all and what unites us rather than attempting to identify and isolate every dis- every difference. Finally, Bella Jo on Twitter suggests the best word is humanity. I'm really hopeful that in the future there will be no labels, just people being people. Not in my lifetime, I'm sure, but one day. Shivani, what do you think is going to be the future of all this labelling in different terms? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's such a... Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like there's a uh, a lot, right? Like, I, I can only talk about my lived experience in the society and the world that I live in. And I... Um, was I, I was growing up and I was always like really uncomfortable with sort of where I was, who I was and my position within society. I never really felt like one of the girls and I knew I wasn't one of the boys. Um, growing up, I used to get, well, you're just a boy with boobs a lot, which was, you know, how my friends, and that was a, that was a label that I carried with me quite proudly because I was like, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm not a regular boy and I'm not one of the girls. I'm like weirdly in between. And um, it last summer I came out as non-binary and that was really powerful for me because I found this label, I found this word to um, identify who I am to people in, in a really simple way that doesn't mean I have to go through that whole story that I've just done. And I think in that way, labels can be really empowering. It can allow you to, to explain who you are to other people and it can allow you to know that you're part of this community of other people who feel and identify in exactly the same way that you do and it makes you feel slightly less alone when it comes to other people labelling you as something and using those words in a negative way. I'd quite like that to end. <laughs> Absolutely. Sophie, you're our guest. We're going to give you the final last word. We've not got long. We're running out of time. But could we end on a positive note? Do you think in some ways we are getting better and better at choosing and manipulating language to express and represent who we are? I think we definitely are. And, and just as I said before, we see this explosion of vocabulary. And I think that's only positive um, and we'll see it settle down after a while. But for now, let's just embrace it. <laughs> the Sunday Roast with Matt Kane, Virgin Radio Pride. OK, we're coming to the end with my amazing panellists. I know that tonight is going to be the final of the Euros, but we've talked a lot about football on this show. Can we attempt to talk about tennis? Football isn't the only sporting show in town. We have Wimbledon going on in full swing. Shivani, what do you think about tennis? It's ace. <laughs> Is that it? I mean, I, I like tennis. I enjoy playing it. I haven't actually been able to watch any Wimbledon so far um, because I've uh, been trying to see my friends, which I haven't been able to do for the last year. So I've been going on lots of long walks, which if you told me I was going to be doing two years ago for fun, I would have told you absolutely no way that that is my idea of fun. But now, 
Well, I'm an old man, so I, I was a fan of the walk and talk anyway. <laughs> but um, but actually, in seriously, thinking about sports, if we do widen it out to football, we talked on a previous episode about how football can be triggering for so many of us, particularly visibly presenting gay men. Um, it seems to me that tennis isn't just free of these associations, but actually has positive associations for our community. I can remember growing up hearing lesbian insults hurled at, I missed the Billie Jean King years, but Martina Navratilova. And even though these comments were hurled in insult, I was thinking, ooh, maybe tennis is actually better, is a good option for people like me. So it's unfortunate that you've mentioned Martina because she t- turns out is quite anti-trans oh, really? and has been quite vocal about that. So obviously I'm not a massive fan, but yes, there was Amélie Moresmo who was kick-ass and had a ma- I had a major crush on and she was obviously very gay and out. And I think there are a lot of gay female players, uh, sorry, lesbian players, whatever the, whatever the terminology... That However they want to identify. Exactly right. I think um, it's certainly more, and again, generalisations are so bad, but I would have thought it's probably a more civilised game than football I think there's probably a lot less homophobia and racism hurled at the players on the first you know on the number one court in Wimbledon than there might be to our lovely Brit lads on the on the pitch the uh, tonight the three lions bring three, it home yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and you know what hopefully honestly we will get to a point within all sports where sports people can come out can be themselves can live happy lives you know at the moment it is all so riddled within sports around particularly trans athletes which is why you know I keep going back to obviously I read a lot about the trans community and there is a lot of negativity around sports but I think you know let's go towards inclusivity and let's try and throw away all the biases that we have around sport like boys should play football and girls should play tennis or hockey or lacrosse and let's get girls fencing and let's get girls wrestling and well can I just say on that subject actually because part of the reason I find it triggering was as a fan gay man or boy should I say it was considered a very traditionally masculine um sport I've always seen you as quite butch (laughs) taking that from you I can laugh somebody outside our community said it anyway I have I do have a serious question which is with these associations with traditional gender behaviours can sports be a useful tool for trans or non-binary people to explore their identities express their identities yeah I can tell by the way that you're looking at me Jay that I've just said something rubbish no it's just it is at the moment it's, it's again it's like the bathroom argument it's now the sports argument it's not about sports just like a hundred years ago when it was argued that black athletes should not compete against white athletes it was not about sports then and it's not about sports now and unfortunately particularly in the US it's become a really really loaded topic where young trans girls because it's never about trans men no one cares about trans men we are totally invisible we are just lesbians who've fallen down the pathway of hormones and surgeries because we want to fit into the patriarchy. Um, Unfortunately, it's always trans women being attacked, trans girls being attacked, and now it's whether or not they're allowed to compete against cisgender girls. And it's all a little bit sad because, you know, my wife played for a a queer football team, queer, an LGBTQIA football team for years with men and women and trans people and loved it. And, you know, what you've got to remember is that sports has always been about inclusion. It is not fair. Sports will never be fair because there are, you know, if it were fair then four four foot tall people would be playing basketball but they're not because it's not fair you know it's bigger bigger stronger faster and you know longer legs look at Usain Bolt you know that wasn't fair his legs were that sorry very very long you know none of it's fair but it's about inclusion it's about health and it's about 
taking part in something because that's what sport should all be about the taking part not the winning alright that was a brilliant impassioned <laughs> speech I need a quick answer from you both handbrake turn are we going to be watching the England footy final tonight I know nothing about football but I am so into this England are win- going to win bring it home it's coming home <laughs> it's, it's coming home <laughs> it's coming yes we will all be watching right brilliant that is about it for this week thanks very much to my guests Shivani Darve, Jake Graff, Lord Michael Cashman and Sophie Holmes Elliott. I'll be back with a brand new panel and some brand new discussions at the same time next week. Drop me a line if you've enjoyed the show, if you want to share an experience or want to have your say. If you're looking for us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK and I'm on at Matt Kane Writer or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. See you at the same time next Sunday and tonight, good luck England! <laughs> Yay! Yay! <laughs>